turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's Monday, a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, church stuff, whatever's on your heart. All you need to do is provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always... I remind you, if you are driving, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hope you had a great day in church yesterday. It was fun here. Uh, We were packed, and that's always a good thing. We have to meet some new people, which is always a good thing. We're getting ready for school to start. Uh, Our teachers are back um, getting ready for school to begin next Monday. Um, so we got a lot going on. If you, um, are looking for our Monday night Bible studies tonight, we don't have them for the next couple of weeks. We're off. We always, we finish the sweet summer devotions and the men's Bible study. And then we take a, a two week break, uh, to get everybody adjusted or readjusted back to the school schedule. And then the, the ladies will start, um, uh, on her, uh, I think they're going to do first John next. Um, so that gets started pretty soon. We'll keep you apprised of that, but no Bible studies here tonight. If you're used to coming in and, um, we'll keep you apprised of when the next one starts. Well, let's get to questions while we await any phone calls that you might have today. Our first question comes from Kevin and it's from our email inbox. Greetings, Pastor Ron. In reading the book of Acts, chapter 28, I was told chapter 29 was removed. According to Romans 15:23, Paul mentions going to Spain. Did he ever travel to Spain? If so, one would think it should have been documented in the text. Chapter 28 leaves certain questions from it. Do you know why 29 was removed? I see why there's so much confusion when reading some of the books. I always wonder who gave people authority to leave out certain books, especially the Apocrypha, in which I'm learning a lot from. This book, let me try to read it here. This book ties over to some of the scriptures where there is some understanding. Please comment. Thank you. Kevin, a couple things. Let me start at the end. The Apocrypha uh, is interesting. There's some interesting stuff there. But the Apocrypha is not inspired by God. The Apocrypha was never a part of the Bible. Um, not the Jewish scriptures uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, never been accepted. Uh, it was incorporated by the Catholic Church. Uh, and they make some of their doctrines and base tradition off it. But the problem with the Apocrypha is that it contradicts uh, much of what is in our Bible. 
Uh, and, and when studying the Bible, I appreciate that you're interested. And I appreciate that you're studying. But be careful what you're reading and be careful who you're listening to. Uh, the Apocrypha, uh, again, has some historical value. But beyond that, it's not inspired by God. The uh, 66 books that we have in our Bible, we know, were written by God. Uh, the Apocrypha was not. And that's why the Apocrypha is found really only in the Catholic Bible. And it's simply not inspired. It is uh, contradictory uh, and contains errors. And, and certainly that's not uh, anything that we would want to be confused by. So, so leave the Apocrypha out of it. Um, again, some historical information uh, is there, um, but um, it's, it's, it's just not close to the level of the information comes from God. And by the way, Kevin, the same thing applies to, to some of the other gospel accounts that float around, uh, which are also not written usually by the authors they're attributed to and certainly not written by God. Uh, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Barnabas. Um, they're not on the same level as that which was written by and preserved by by God. So I hope that makes sense. Now, in terms of the book of Acts, there was never a chapter 29, not ever. One of the things I'm going to begin, um, uh, I've got a few more, maybe a couple more months in the Gospel of Mark, and then I'm going to go directly on Sundays into the book of Acts. Uh, but there never was a chapter 29. And the really neat thing about the book of Acts, from my perspective, is that it just sort of leaves off in mid sentence. It's like it's not done. And the real title of the book of Acts is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. We've got the Acts of the Apostles, people say, but it's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit is doing. And the reason it ends so abruptly in chapter 28 is because the book of Acts in heaven has been being written continually from that time. By that, I mean the church is carrying on the work of the Holy Spirit, so the work of the Holy Spirit is simply not finished. But there never was a chapter 29. Whoever told you that has no idea what he or she is talking about. Uh, so there's there's just no basis at all to say that. Now, uh, the question about whether or not Paul traveled to Spain is really interesting. I really, uh, I've done so much study on the Apostle Paul and his life. We know that Paul took three missionary journeys. Uh, he went to Cyprus, to Syria, to Asia Minor, to Macedonia, and to Greece, and then was wrongly accused in Jerusalem um, and imprisoned. Now, the, 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 the issue with Spain would come during the time he was in prison. Um, it is widely believed, widely believed that Paul was under house arrest in Rome and then had a period of time where he was released. And there are people who think that he went to uh, Spain. We know that he wanted to, um, but um, um, whether or not he ever got there, we don't know. Second uh, Timothy chapter 4. Paul says, verse 16, he says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Uh, may it not be charged against him. And it's thought that he's made, he made two defenses. The first was uh, when he was released from um, um, house prison. And then the second was before Nero himself. Of course, that was when he was sentenced to death. So the only thing that we know for sure from the inspired scriptures is that uh, Paul had three missionary journeys um, and uh, they ended with his imprisonment and then ultimately his execution uh, after having been placed in the Mamertine prison in Rome. Now, uh, there, uh, there is tradition uh, that Paul went to Spain, but there's no inspired record of this in the Bible at all. Uh, he mentioned to the Romans that he wanted to take the gospel to Spain. We know that, as you indicated, in Romans chapter 15. Uh, Clement of Rome, around A.D. 95, he has writings that say Paul went to the farthest limits of the West. Uh, that could possibly mean Spain, but it could possibly even be west, more West than that, uh, and, and go into, uh, into uh, England. So we don't know that. Um, but what we do know for sure, <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm sorry, Kevin and everybody else. I had a 
something stuck in my throat and had to cough. Um, but we know that his second rest um, ended his missionary journeys. Um, and if it was, uh, uh, if he was in Spain or somebody else, it was brought back uh, to Rome, uh, and that's where he, he lost his life. So that's what we know. We know that Nero was breathing fire against Christians, and Paul would have been a trophy for him to kill. So uh, no way of knowing for sure. All we have is tradition, and of course, tradition uh, is not inspired, and so all we can do is speculate. I'm not sure, Kevin, whether it's really good to speculate about things that the Bible doesn't tell us about, and we have no historical record of. So, um, did he go to Spain? We don't know. He wanted to, that we know. But beyond that, uh, we really didn't have any other information provided. Good questions. Thank you very much. And I appreciate your curiosity, Kevin. That's a sign of, uh, I think, true spirituality. Here's an anonymous question from our mobile app. Uh, Pastor Ron is chewing tobacco or smoking a sin. I haven't found anything in the scripture. Thank you and God bless your church. Thank you, anonymous. God is blessing our, our church here and the work that we're doing. Um, no, chewing tobacco or smoking, neither is a sin. Uh, neither is good for you. Uh, they're both dirty, filthy habits, but neither are sin. And the reason you don't find the Bible is simply because those are the kind of things that are are more modern, um, have more modern applications in our culture than they did back then. Uh, but um, no, chewing tobacco is not a sin. Smoking is not a sin. Now, let me qualify that a little bit. There are some directives in scriptures about these gray areas, areas where we uh, are to use our liberty, um, but also we're, we're, we're told as Christians to be willing to, to give up our liberty for the benefit of others. So so there's, there's principles that apply to these things. For example, Anonymous, if you are chewing tobacco and you have a wife and children and they're asking you to stop, or if you're smoking and they're asking you to stop, then you should. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, giving yourself up for her. She wants what's best for you. She doesn't want the example perhaps set for children. And again, I know this isn't your case, situation, but I'm just giving you an idea of how we can interpret the scriptures in these areas uh, that we call gray. Um, so, you know, uh, we're free to do all things, Paul says, but not all things are beneficial. And I think that's the way a Christian ought to look at these things. The idea of drinking falls in the same category. Is drinking good for you? Does drinking enhance your walk with the Lord? So chewing tobacco, smoking um, would fall under that same uh, general uh, category. So not a sin. Uh, don't let anybody convince you it's a sin. But remember, Anonymous, one of the things that Paul makes a point of is that there's never a better use of our Christian liberty than to willingly give it away to benefit others. That's really when we are the most like Christ. So, thank you. Nothing in the scriptures. Anything not of faith is sin, Romans fourteen twenty three says. So, if uh, you are chewing or smoking and the Holy Spirit's knocking on the door of your heart and saying, you know, maybe there'd be more ministry for you. Maybe you'd set a better example if you didn't do this. Well, then you want to listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Again, not because it's sin, but because God has more ministry for you, whether it's in your own home or with others. Uh, it's it's simple. You know, it's, it's really interesting. Now, Paul and I have been here for 27 years, but one of the things that shocked us when we got here was the number of Christians that smoked, even at church. They'd be outside, you know, they'd have to smoke outside even back then. But um, uh, it just the numbers of people hanging around outside smoking were startling in, in California where we were from um, uh, people just didn't smoke at church. It just wasn't one of those things. I'm sure they got in their cars and smoked or went somewhere else and smoked, but uh, it just wasn't something that was as visible. And that was kind of shocking to us, and we were surprised by it. Good question, Anonymous. Thank you very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Nacho from our mobile app. He says, I'm wondering if there's any significance to the fact that in the Bible, almost all of the people who were raised from the dead came from paradise and not heaven. 
and that it happened before Jesus was raised from the dead to include those saints who were raised to life in Matthew 27. The only two occasions after Jesus' resurrection that I know of is Peter and Dorcas in Acts chapter 9 and Paul and Eutychus in Acts chapter 20. Is there any significance to the fact that they came from one place or the other? Um, I don't think there's significance. I think there is an explanation, Nacho. Um, You see, until Jesus was crucified and risen from the dead, um, paradise was the holding place. We know this from Luke chapter 16. Paradise was the holding place for the righteous dead. And you know the story there, uh, and it's not a parable, it's a story uh, they could look over and see people in torment in the other side, a big gulch between them, but they could see people in torment, the people in torment could see the people in paradise, and it must have been completely painful to them to watch people in paradise while they were suffering to such a degree. But when Jesus died, He descended into the abyss, the lower parts of the earth. And the Bible tells us that he set the captives free. What that means is that he descended into, you remember Mary Magdalene was holding on, don't hold on to me, I've got to go to your father and my father. I've not yet done that. Well, that's because he needed to go down to, uh, Peter says, uh, to to paradise and preach. He preached a message of victory. Um, And in the process, it was for those in paradise. Now, they're in a great place. Paradise is self-explanatory. But he took them to his place. In my father's house are many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Well, his death prepared that place. And so he took all of the people in paradise and he took them to heaven. Now, in Matthew 27, which is an obscure passage of Scripture that uh, I get questions about all the time on this show, uh, we don't have any details. We know that they came to life when Jesus died. But it wasn't until after he raised to life three days later that they came out of the tombs and they were seen in the holy city in Jerusalem and they were proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, just my opinion on this, um, Nacho, is that uh, I think those righteous dead, now we don't even know who they were. Were they the recently dead? Uh, Were they some of the famous Old Testament saints um, who were risen from the dead? We don't know who they were at all. But clearly, if you were in Jerusalem and you saw people you knew who were dead, who were walking around declaring the glory of God, declaring the the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that would certainly explain why so many people got saved on the first day of the church. I mean, they would have to be asking questions. Now, obviously, this was 50 days later, but um, uh, they would be planting seeds, scattering seeds, sowing seed and and, and watering the the ground. And uh, when the Holy Spirit fell and Peter preached that message, 3,000 men, that doesn't include the women and children who were there, 3,000 were saved right away. I think those 3,000 had that haunting memory of those dead people walking around saying Jesus was the one. He came to his own and his own received him not. So that's my opinion. I don't know that for sure. Uh, But we do know that all of those who are raised to life after that, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So Dorcas in Acts 9, Eutychus in Acts chapter 20, when they were literally dead, I also believe that the Apostle Paul uh, was dead, uh, having been stoned at Lystra uh, and taken to heaven. But all of them would have been taken to heaven and if God sent them back, what a bummer that would have been for them. But that would be a purpose. Of course, we don't ever argue with God once we're there and we're in heaven. Uh, but uh, in Dorcas's case, God wanted to do something nice for the other people. It was a sign people then got saved. And in Eutychus's case, uh, imagine Paul stretched out on him and the life comes back into him and everybody goes, whew. <laughs> but um, th- they would have come from heaven before that, everybody would have come from paradise, including Lazarus when he was raised from the dead. Good question. I like uh, interesting questions like that. Thank you very much, Nacho. Here is a question. This one is from Karen. 
She says, Pastor Ron, in my church, there's a prophet who always says, thus saith the Lord. Should we honor him as a prophet, Karen? No, no, no. Two things. One, it 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 clearly is true that you're in an unbalanced, unhealthy church. Um, there are no prophets today. Um, the gift of prophecy does not make one a prophet. The gift of prophecy, the foretelling of God's word, not the foretelling of the future, but the foretelling of God's word, uh, that's a gift that God still is using powerfully today. But for a prophet, you know, in the, the, the line of John the Baptist, in the line of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, and Isaiah and so many of the others that we know about, uh, there are no prophets like that. And so if in your church there is somebody who is allowed, a man or a woman who's allowed to declare themselves a prophet or prophetess, then your church is um, unbiblical, out of balance, and uh, these are people who are trying to take way too much on themselves. You know, Karen, I always say, I, I have no idea why anybody would want the responsibility of speaking for the Lord. But this is all ego. Uh, it's It's an enemy who's deceived us. Um, these people who proclaim loudly, thus saith the Lord, and then they go on and on, they're wrong almost all of the time, which automatically disqualifies them from the office of prophet. Um, and they're ruining people's lives. They're ruining people's lives. Let me tell you a quick story. We don't have anybody on hold. i got five minutes left in this half of the program. Um, uh, I went walking. This is This is before we came to Texas. Uh, before I, I mean, I was knew I was called to be a pastor then, but but I didn't know anything about what being a pastor was. I'm a brand new Christian, six seven months old in the Lord, and one Sunday morning I got up really early, went out, took a walk with the Lord, and and I felt now I was wrong, but I felt like the Spirit of God was telling me to go to church, and it was a place that was like almost an hour away. And so I, I thought, man, I'm going to have to hurry and get home. We're, Paul and I are going to have to get in the car, and we're going to have to go. Uh, and so we did that, and it was a place called Eagle's Nest Church, and it was just a goofy, charismatic church. Uh, the pastor there was a good guy, but but he just wrong in so many things. Uh, but I didn't know that then. And so we went to this church, and uh, he was moving up and down the aisles and he was touching people on the forehead and they were falling over and he was prophesying uh, over people. And he walked by me maybe three times, maybe four times. I don't remember exactly. And I've never been to church before. Now, when Paul and I go to a church that we've never been to before, people know we're new. Black girl, white guy, and they've never seen us. And he walks by and he looks at me and then he walks by again and looks at me. And then he does some other knocking people down stuff. And then he walks over and he just looks at me and he says, you stand up. And I stood up and he, and he looked at Paul and said, you're with him. And she said, yes. And he said, you stand up. And, uh, he started telling me these crazy things. Here's what he said. He said, the Lord wants you to pay attention to everything I'm doing today because you are going to be doing these same things. Now, he was a pastor. I'm a pastor now. So the devil is an expert with just a little bit of the truth. But there's no way that God ever would have said I would have been doing those same things because they were unbiblical. Now, Karen, I didn't know that back then. I didn't have any any knowledge. I didn't have any uh, experience. I just thought, well, this guy's really a prophet. And, you know, all the people in the church come up to me afterwards and say, wow, you're really blessed. You really are anointed because God's going to do the same thing with you that he's doing with Pastor Gary and, and all those things. Um, but he was a false prophet. He was a false prophet. So you are not to honor him as a prophet or her. Uh, in our old church in California, before, um, we, uh, before I went to Bible college even, um, there was one lady who just, she had to speak for God every service, every single service. And it just gets old and it's the same old TBN mumbo jumbo. And it has no value at all. And again, Karen, um, what they say, because it's false, really, really does hurt people's lives. So be very, very careful. If I were you, I would immediately go speak to my pastor 
and say, why are we allowing this person to say they're a prophet of God? And why don't you stop them? And you're going to find out about your pastor at that point. And if you're in an unhealthy, uh, out-of-balance church, it would be much better for you, Karen. I know it's hard to leave friends. I know it's hard to leave relationships that have been developed, especially if you've been in a church for a long time. But this is dangerous stuff. And you shouldn't do it. We need not to be eager to speak for God. If we're going to speak for God, we better have Bible coming out of our mouths. So, Karen, I hope that helps a little bit. You know, people ask me, why are you so passionate about this? I can't tell you how many broken lives, broken walks with God, that as a pastor who honors the Word of God, um, I've had to put together or help put back together. And some of them we just couldn't. Some of them the people never, ever got over the lies and the treatment. Um, The devil's always at work, especially at church. Hey, well, it's Monday. We've got 30 minutes left in our program. We'd love your live calls, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the Monday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Sharla. I think churches are abandoning single moms and their kids. I really struggle with all the money they take in. Why don't they help? Um, Sharla, I, I couldn't agree more with you. I could not agree more with you. I think personally, and I've said this um, many, many times over the years, and, and including on this program, uh, I think that um, single moms and their children or the New Testament, New Testament equivalent of the widows and orphans in the Old Testament. God always looks out for the people who are struggling. God always looks out for the people who who um, can't do it on their own. You know, the, these aren't people that are lazy. Uh, women, uh, sadly, tragically, don't make as much money as as men do, uh, especially with if, if their education is limited. And certainly as as uh, single moms, they've got obligations and responsibilities. And I think it is the responsibility of churches to help those moms and their kids. Uh, I don't know where you go to church. Um, we actually at our church um, actively look to help single moms um, with jobs, with money, food. Uh, house cleaning, um, uh, we fix things. We got a ministry called Bethel Ministry here, uh, where we've got some some men and women who are just gifted at fixing things, and and they can go out and take care of uh, both the elderly and single moms uh, who can't afford to fix things or keep things running. Um, so we do uh, a lot, Sharla, uh, and I'm sure that uh, other churches do as well. One of the things that people don't really know about in in churches, especially if you're sort of kind of on the fringes, is that uh, I don't know any church that would turn away somebody who who needs help. Uh, I think most churches have a benevolence fund set apart. And uh, uh, unfortunately, most of the time it's not used uh, because people don't want to ask um, pride issues, but 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 even even when it's not pride, uh, I just think because people just don't imagine that the, the church is going to help me. Um, but the reality is, is I think they want to help. I think so few people ask that uh, they're they're really looking for opportunities. I know that when my life was falling apart, uh, a church that barely knew me. Uh, I, I'd just been going there for a short time. Uh, they helped me. 
and I was stunned that they would help me. So I, I think, Sharla, the, the only thing that I would hope churches would do is be more aggressive in letting people in the church know that help is available. But I just can't imagine that if you went to uh, one of the staff pastors at your church and said, you know, I'm a single mom, I'm really struggling financially, is there any way I can get some help? Um, especially if you have any record of giving. Now, we certainly don't require that here at our church, but I think some churches would. If you have a record of being faithful as a steward and you're just not able to make it, I I can't imagine uh, churches saying, uh, nope, can't help you. Um, That's just not the heart of most churches. So uh, let your struggles be known. I know that's difficult, but let your struggles be known. The pastor that you speak to will almost certainly keep it in confidence um, the honest truth is, Sharla, uh, we, we want to help people. We actually love the people who come to our churches, and we want to be available to help them. So um, please take that counsel. Let them know that you have a need. Uh, if you don't, uh, the enemy will just keep making you more and more bitter. So um, just let somebody know that you need help. Uh, if if you don't want to go to one of the pastors, uh, then find a woman in the church who's been around you can talk to and, and w- let her go with you to ask. But again, Charlotte, I think, I think churches really want to help. And uh, we make that known here at Calvary Chapel. Um, just It's a regular part of any opportunity that we have in the teaching of the Word. We let people know that we're here to help them. So... Uh, I hope that makes sense. Here's a question from Drake. I'm sure not Drake the singer, the rapper. He says, why doesn't God take away some of the sin issues I'm addicted to? Drake, he already did. See, this is the thing. You've got to know your word. Yesterday in my Bible study, Jesus um, um, was pointing out the error of the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. And he said, you're all wrong. You're in error because you do not know the scriptures, nor do you know the power of God. And I think, Drake, when people ask questions like you've asked here, um, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. The, The power of sin was broken in your life the minute you got born again. Now, obviously, if you're not born again, then that's the first step. You've got to give your heart to Jesus Christ. You've got to surrender because he will give you a whole new um, source of power to fight temptation. So, uh, again, I don't know what the sin issues that you're addicted to might be, but that power has already been broken the minute you ask Jesus Christ into your heart. Now, all of temptation doesn't go away. In fact, the devil is going to pile on because he wants to keep you in bondage. God wants you to be free. So the question is, do you have enough faith in what God has already done, fighting from a position of victory rather than hoping from a position of defeat? Do you have enough faith to believe, to really believe that God has already broken those chains, those things that you are in bondage to? If you do, then God will help you. You know, um, Drake, I know the first time you've you've written in to our program, uh, but I say all the time, just be with Jesus. When you're with Jesus, um, you won't do those sinful things uh, because he's there with you. Being in his presence is the beautiful place to be. Being in his presence is a source of joy and a source of power. So the, the things that you're addicted to, uh, he's already taken away. Now, what God wants you to do is to let him go. Let him go. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 is something you ought to memorize. It says, uh, No sin or no temptation has come except that which is common to man. In other words, whatever you're going through, other people have been through. And then it says, And God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he'll provide a way out. So you have to decide, Drake, do you believe that? Um, um, again, because I don't know what you're addicted to, um, all I can say is that God has already broken 
um, that hold that sin and temptation has on you. And you've got to decide, I'm going to walk with Jesus and say no to my flesh. I'm going to say no to sin and temptation. And I'm going to say yes to Jesus. And I think too often we think, especially as Christians, Drake, we think, well, okay, God, take it away from me. And he's shouting at you, I already have. And we're waiting for him to do something, to take away the temptation, to take away the problem. And he doesn't do that. There are consequences to sin. If there were no consequences, we would keep sinning. So God will take away those things that will destroy you. He will leave those things that he wants you to learn to fight with his help. So you've just got to make a decision. Do I really believe the power of God? Paul says the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to all ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age. That's Titus chapter 2. So, Drake, the power has already been given. All you've got to do is rid your life of those things that cause you to be tempted. Just get away from them. Don't go places. If you're uh, addicted to marijuana, don't hang around with with the people that smoke it don't don't hang around with the old friends if you're if you're a drinker uh, don't go to a bar don't go buy booze uh, get rid of all the booze in your house if you're addicted to pornography um, get rid of your computer if you have to be that radical if you can't control yourself and then let the power of the holy spirit respond to your obedience and he will truly honor your heart to do that so, Drake, I hope that makes sense to you. You know, I had a guy not too long ago um, who, who said, you know, I was addicted to heroin and God just took the desire away from that, but I can't stop smoking cigarette. And I told him the reason is because heroin was going to kill you and cigarettes aren't. So now because God did it with the heroin, are you willing to trust him with the cigarettes? Just get rid of them. And he did, and God, God honored that. So it's just one of those things that Uh, We've got to decide. This is where our level of faith comes in. Do we really believe that the promises of God, you do, or or, or Jesus said you err because you don't know the scriptures, nor do you know the power of God? And, Drake, we've got to know both of those things. Good question. Here is a question from Paul. He says, is birth control for Christians okay? Of course it is, Paul. Um, This is one of those things the Bible... Uh, this is one of those things that the Bible doesn't uh, speak about. There was certainly no birth control. Uh, as we understand birth control, medicine hadn't, hadn't advanced that way. Um, but, but yeah, you, you have the choice to, to prevent pregnancy. Um, be fruitful and multiply is not an order. That was a command that was given to um, um, Adam and Eve and by extension to the uh, early inhabitants of the earth because the earth was empty and needed to be populated. And boy, did they ever multiply. Um, but we have the freedom to choose kids. If we want kids, go for it. Or until you want kids, birth control is fine. Uh, you know, one of the gifts that God has given us is science and medicine. And so, Paul, this is one of the things that we can do. Now, I realize there are religious traditions, most notably Catholicism, that for a very long time um, um, prohibited uh, birth control. Um, but frankly, that's that's not biblical. That's, that's relying on a tradition rather than the Word of God. So do what you want to do. I always tell people, I love doing pre-marriage counseling, because one of the questions I'm going to ask pretty early on in the process is, are you planning on kids? And people will say, oh, no, we're not going to have kids for five years or we're not going to have kids for two years or whatever it is. And I always ask them, well, wait a minute, have you prayed about that? What if God wants to bless you with kids? Now, remember, in premarriage counseling, I'm trying to get them to a place where they submit to the will of God for the entirety of their lives because that's the way that they're going to be able to navigate the the, the, the marital adjustments once they're married, the, the difficulties that come up. If they're submitted to the will of God, God has answers for those things. And I'm just trying to get them to understand that what God wants is way better for us 
than anything that we want for ourselves. And sometimes we need to get rid of our preconceived ideas, our opinions, and we simply need to be able to say, thy will, not my will be done. And God will tell you if it's okay. You know, it's not like God's going to force kids on you. Um, But remember, I can promise you, you want every blessing that God is going to give. Here's a question from Anna. She says, can you explain, please, what apologetics is? Yeah, Anna, I can. Um, Too often we read the word apologetics and it's like making an apology for what we believe. But apologetics is simply um, understanding our faith. Uh, being able to, uh, I'll share from Peter, uh, give a reason for the hope that we have within, to to give answers. You know, our faith, uh, a lot of times in the world, they'll say, oh, you Christians are just naive. You'll believe anything. Um, but, but, but our faith is not blind, stupid faith. Our faith is faith based on fact, faith based on overwhelming evidence, faith based on, uh, for us as Christians, 2,000 years of watching the power of God at work in our world. So um, um, to be in a, uh, somebody who, who deals with apologetics is simply to be able to give reasons. Why do we believe what we believe? We don't have to make excuses. We don't have to say, well, you know, it's just faith. We, we have reasons, and our, our faith is reasonable. And so that's what apologetics is. Now, let me tell you, Anna, what apologetics is not. Because what we've done um, with our stupid, carnal, human flesh, um, we've devolved apologetics, which is a wonderful, wonderful uh, course of study, into online debating and arguing. Um, uh, Apologetics has turned into what they call themselves as discernment ministries. You don't find that in Scripture anywhere. That's not a gift given by God. We want to get online and we want to argue. And we want people to to, to hear our opinion and we want them to come to our side because our arguments are so persuasive. That is not apologetics. Discernment ministries under the guise of uh, apologetics are... um, Unity injuring ministries. Um, there, there, there are a lot of noise. Uh, often, um, they're they're headed up by really smart people. But Paul said, "Doesn't matter how smart you are, if you have not love, you're just making noise." And that's what apologetics has become in this day and age of the internet. Everybody's got a website, and when you go to a website, everybody seems like they're an expert, and they got pages and pages and pages of stuff. And typically, they know more than you do, and so it's easy to be convinced. Uh, we're to avoid these kind of arguments. And and in the spirit, we're just not to be there. So uh, apologetics is not these discernment ministries that are prevalent online at all, Anna. It's a noble thing. Always knowing why we believe, what we believe is important. A couple of apologetics ministries that I can recommend to you. Um, um, and I'll start from from the easiest. And by that, I mean it's just not so in-depth that it'll bury you. Um, there's a, a guy named Paul Little, L-Y-T-T-L-E, and he has two books, uh, paperbacks, Know What You Believe and Know Why You Believe, and that's a great primer for getting into apologetics. Um, there's uh, another one by Lee Strobel, uh, a series of them, Case for Christ, A Case for the Resurrection, The Case for the Bible. Um, um, th- those are also paperbacks and not too deep. Now, uh, th- there are others that are, are, are much better. Josh McDowell, uh, The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, uh, is excellent, but boy, that's really, really heady uh, study there. It's it's not easy reading at all, and it's an enormous volume of stuff. And uh, one of the things that, that you'll notice in those books is bibliographies, and you can chase this as far as you want. So information is good. Knowledge is good. But remember, it's got to be accompanied by love. It's got to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, and then it won't be disunifying at all. It, it will be unifying, in fact. So, Anna, thank you for the question. I hope that makes sense. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Irene says... 
I work in a hostile environment for Christians. There are times I get really angry and want to lash out. If I do, will God forgive me? Uh, Irene, I think you just described the place most of us work. Now, not me because I work here at the church. But uh, Christians, we, we work in a hostile environment. The world is a hostile environment. What you cannot do is act like they do. Do not sin in your anger, the Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesians. So get angry, make sure it's righteous anger, and then turn that energy into prayer for the people you're angry toward. And don't let them push your buttons and eventually end up compromising your witness. So if you lash out, of course God will forgive you. Jesus died for all of your sins. However, the people that are making you angry will just talk more behind your back. They'll just point their fingers and laugh. Oh, she calls herself a Christian kind of thing. Remember, stay above the fray. Don't let them influence you. Irene, take Jesus to work with you. You know, I've had been asked over the years, well, well, why won't God give me a job where Christians work? I said, because darkness is the place where light needs to be. And he wants to use you in that hostile environment to show the people in darkness that your life is something that they can achieve but it has to be only with your Jesus. That's the most powerful witness of all. When you can say, in the middle of all of this hostility, I love you and I'm praying for you. So take Jesus to work with you. If you don't, you're going to blow it. Take him to work with you and let him remind you throughout the day, every day, let him remind you that he loves those people and he wants you to love them for him, if you give them the chance. Irene, that's a much, much better way to go to work. Jesus will be pleased. And by the way, if you don't take my counsel, this is a lesson God's going to have to teach you, so it's likely that even if you blow up and quit, he's going to have to teach you that lesson in the next place. So, Just take Jesus to work with you. It'll change everything. Okay, we've got only a couple of minutes left, four minutes, I think, left. So here's the next question. Uh, Duncan. Uh, Duncan, this is a question I get fairly often. Can someone who commits suicide go to heaven? Uh, Duncan, everybody who's born again goes to heaven, even those who commit suicide. It is a terrible sin. It displeases the Lord. Um, we we don't have the right to harm ourselves. Um, only God determines life and death, the times, the winds. Um, but it's not the unforgivable sin. Um, sometimes, and I've done quite a few actually suicide funerals, and Duncan in three of those cases I knew they were warning Christians the devil wins now whenever I'm asked this question I always wonder about the motive so Duncan if you're listening please understand that if you're thinking about killing yourself and you're a Christian you cannot do it a Christian cannot take his or her own life and so there should never be a follow up question well what if I do It should never be that. You can't do it. And see, the decision you make will demonstrate who you really are. See, if you're a real Christian, you understand that Jesus is the one who is in control of your life. Jesus is the one who has a plan for your life. Jesus is the one who wants to walk with you out of the darkness that you're in. So, depending on which side of this question you're coming from, If you're a believer, if you're born again, this is simply something you can't do. If you're a believer and you've lost somebody to suicide and they also were a believer, the reality is that there are times when the devil overcomes. But suicide is not the unforgivable sin. So, Duncan, I'd rather talk to you in person than answer a question like this on the radio. 
Here's the last one from today. Darren, he says, I think I repeat myself a lot in prayer. Jesus said we shouldn't do that. Are my prayers being heard? Um, Duncan, a couple of things. I have challenged my church over and over and over to record their prayers. You know, we got these recording devices that we spend all day on these days. And um, uh, I think um, recording our prayers and listening to them is the most effective thing we can do to really understand uh, how we're communicating with God. Um, I repeat myself a lot in prayer, too. I pray every day for some of the same people. Uh, That's not the kind of repetition Jesus is talking about. But just the repetition, the rosary, and and nonsense like that, um, that's simply um, ineffective prayer. Those are prayers that are heard. God will only hear the prayers of born-again Christians. And the only prayer that he can hear from somebody who is not born again is, is, God, save me a sinner. And so we have to have access to the Lord. Jesus is the one who gave us that access. And Jesus said you must be born again in order to inherit the kingdom of God. So, um, Darren, you know you've got this issue. So here's what I would ask you to do. Just talk to Jesus. Just talk to him. Don't think you've got to be King James English. Um, You don't have to yell. You don't have to change your tone of voice. Just talk to him like you'd talk to a friend. He is your friend. He said that. That's a promise he made you. Good question, Darren. Thank you very much. Hey, we've got Tuesday program coming up tomorrow. This is The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. I'll be back on AM 630 The Word, 4 o'clock tomorrow. Lord willing, see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.